0: You're listening to Vernacular Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. This is season five, I guess, sort of. Sally, are we calling this a full season?
0: Sure. Yeah. It's a special season, Uh, but it could be season
1: five. A special season, a commemorative season, <laughs> season five <laughs> of vernacular. So if you've listened to us before, you know that normally our format is we uh, host a podcast and interview a guest or two or three. And in this season, we're not doing that. There's a logistical reason, which I'll get you. But uh, more importantly, we thought it'd be fun to do a book club. So for the next four months, once a month, we're going to sit down and talk together about a book that we've read. So this month's selection, which we've announced on social media, and hopefully you're uh, your tracking is quiet by social by Susan, not social Kane Susan Kane, and uh, next month's is a man called O by Friedrich Bachmann. They're both really good books, and we're really excited to talk about them. But first, let's make our exciting announcement. Sally, we had something very special happen about two months ago.
0: Yes, we released our last episode of season four on I think it was the 26th of November, and the very next day we had a baby well we went into i went into labor and then the two days later we had a baby so it was a surprise. complete surprise <laughs> <laughs> we were like oh we'll finish our last episode two weeks before she's due no problem and bam like we released it i think i shared it on instagram that morning and then that afternoon we were in the hospital and she was born yep. on sunday november 27th we did not expect to have november baby but we did
1: so little Lucy, she's beautiful. She's healthy. She's doing very well. She's uh, keeping her mama up at night. But uh,
0: but that's okay. Yeah, she turned two months just um, – well, she will – so that the day that we're recording this, um, she will turn two months tomorrow, but – Um, Yeah, we'll have released this after that. So yeah, she's two months old, which is crazy. I can't believe it's been two months since we podcasted. I feel rusty.
1: (laughs) I know, I do too. And I mentioned the the logistical issues that uh, put me on Skype. I've been traveling a lot and I'm currently on the other side of the world. So we're podcasting from almost diametrically opposite ends of the earth, which is kind of exciting, but also frustrating because I'd rather be home with my family.
0: Yeah, and if we sound a little haggard, it's because it is really early for Zach and really late, relatively, for me. (laughs) And I'm battling some sort of cold. So all of those things, but we are rallying because we know that there are listeners out there and there are book club members who are really pumped to talk about this
1: book. That's right.
0: So this book... Um, as you said, Susan Cain, Quiet. It is about introversion, but you don't have to be an introvert to appreciate this book, right? Wouldn't you say that, Zach?
1: Oh, I would definitely say that. Yeah. And I, there's more that we can say on that, but I think we'll save that for later about about whether or not we are introverts or extroverts and whether or not we thought we were as we were reading it. But yeah, so the book is called Quiet and the subtitle is The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And it's a really good examination of the introvert-extrovert dichotomy. In some ways, I think that has limited utility to frame the debate in terms of whether or not everyone is an extrovert or an introvert, and we'll talk about that too. But uh, Kane's thesis is that people need to listen to introverts more because, not to sound trite, but introverts make the world go round, and in fact, introverts make the world a better place. Because if the world were led by a bunch of extroverts, it would be led by people who were not necessarily as introspective as their introvert counterparts, not necessarily as good at leading teams that are active, teams that are full of other extroverts. So um, she opens the book by talking about how we've moved from a culture of character to a culture of personality. And this, I think, is one of the most interesting parts of the book.
0: Yeah, that's in part one, The Extrovert Ideal. Just to summarize it really quickly in terms of the titles, she's got um, about three or four chapters per each part, except for one part. Part two is Your Biology, Yourself. Part three is Do All Cultures Have an Extrovert Ideal? And part four is How to Love, How to Work. And that's kind of an application section. Um, So, yeah, um, let's just – do you want to start with part one?
1: The Extrovert Extrovert Ideal, ideal? Yeah, yeah. We'll just go in order here. Yeah, so um, the expert ideal came out of what she refers to as sort of like the self-help industry. So she talks about Tony Robbins, the uh, self-help magnet and life coach who's built a multi-million dollar empire around his ability to help people sell themselves. She talks about Dale Carnegie, the author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. And she highlights people like them as uh, being on the vanguard shift in how we think about relating to other people. In turning from a a culture of character to a culture of personality. So, in the 19th century, late 19th century, or even even as late as the early 20th century, Kane talks about how people valued introspection and being quiet and thinking before you speak, et cetera. Being disciplined, being
0: honorable. She said,
1: right. And then came along this culture of personality in which you had to uh, use flowery language, perform,
0: entertain
1: be the life of the party, etc. And that was what would get you ahead in life. And anecdotally, I mean, I can, I definitely can see the truth of that, that statement, it seems like we're always being peddled this story that if you want to succeed in life, you have to be a go getter who sees what you want, knows what you want, goes and gets what you want. And in doing so that you put yourself out there that you're always selling yourself and selling your capabilities, right? It's the the idea of the networker or the hyper networker. If you want to succeed in life, you have to be that person.
0: Yeah, you have to learn how to market and kind of advertise yourself and be charismatic, which doesn't seem to be something that historically was true. So, I I mean, I definitely buy that, the shift um, that she's arguing for. I guess um, one question that you had mentioned Earlier, before we started recording, is is it is it that simple? Is it that simple that we um, that things like the rise of salesmanship and the self help industry is what drove that shift from from the culture of character to the culture of personality?
1: Yeah, I think that is a good question. And she doesn't really go. I mean, it's almost a um, I don't know chicken chicken versus the egg question. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? She seems to suggest that. It was the shift of the salesmanship mentality that that changed us from a culture of character to a culture of personality. But it seems like there might have been something else that was driving both of those. You know, the relationship between the two is actually spurious correlation, not causation. And so, I'm not really sure what phenomenon it would be that caused the the actual shift of personality. But I think the emphasis on salesmanship is one of the manifestations of that. Uh, one of it. one of the things could be the to um, f- follow on to the Industrial Revolution after things become mechanized and industry rises so that, that big corporations emerge. It could be that with the proliferation of private wealth and the opportunity to realize the American dream through industry that people ended up emphasizing those qualities of extroversion that would get them noticed and potentially get them material wealth That's one possibility. Um, yeah. Uh, no, I guess I haven't really thought through other <laughs> – do you have other no, ideas?
0: No. Um, no, what I was going to say is I thought in this section, her bringing up – talking about salesmanship – I was tempted to think of oh, salesmanship. That's bad. That's that's where they you know they emphasize you have to be an extrovert. But she later on talks about an example of a guy who was a salesman, but he was also he was not extroverted in his communication style. And so that's it doesn't true. seem like salesmanship in and of itself is evidence of the extrovert ideal because you could be a very face to face, you know, one on one kind of introverted salesman. <laughs> um, right.
1: And then as, as she describes later.
0: Right, right. Um, and then chapter two, she talks about the myth of charismatic leadership. And, and I was just wondering what, what that means. Like, what, what does it mean for the charismatic leadership to be a myth? And I guess what she's saying is you don't have to be charismatic to be a leader, and that's kind of what the extrovert ideal has caused us to think is that in order to be a leader, you have to be an extrovert. You have to be a certain kind of person. And she has so many examples throughout the book of why introverts make good leaders. And uh, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but in other cultures, they, most, most people are introverts. And so, um, so most leaders then end up being introverts.
1: Yeah, but that, I'm glad you brought that up, that question that she asks of uh, charismatic leadership and the myth of charismatic leadership. And I guess your question that that we talked about before we started this was is charismatic leadership really a myth? And I think it is. I mean, anecdotally, I can only speak from personal experience, but I like to study leadership, I like to read biographies. And it does seem like people emphasize the the outward part, the extroverted part of the quote, unquote, great man, uh, when they're talking about case studies of leadership. And The reality is that a lot of the leaders that we talk about, a lot of the leaders who have made their mark on history, have been introverts. So three examples that come to mind immediately are George Washington. People I think often think of this guy as the loud, courageous six foot four giant who was the commander of all of the US troops in the Revolutionary War and then later our president. But if you read his biography by Ron Chernow, you find that he was actually a very introspective, thoughtful person. Um, Kane herself talks about Steve Wozniak, who was the uh, the basically the brains, the technical brains behind the project of Apple. His work started at the homebrew computer club, building a computer, talking with other hobbyists, and eventually he partnered with Steve Jobs to figure out what type of machine they could build. And even though Steve Jobs was the the driving personality who got a lot of the marketing stuff done and kept the team humming along on time. It was Wozniak's vision and genius that ultimately enabled the Mac. I mean, without without Wozniak, there's no Apple.
0: Yeah, shout out to um, Walter Isaacson's biography, which I'm finally reading. I think I'm not even at page 200 yet, but <laughs> it's yeah. good.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's um, a great... Uh, a great read. If you haven't read it, we've talked about it before on this podcast. I love that book. Um, But yeah, so without Waz there's no Apple and Waz is is an introvert's introvert, you know. Um, And another example that Kane actually also talks about later in the book is uh, Mahatma Gandhi, someone who did not go out of his way to be the life of the party. In fact, often went out of his way to not be the life of the party. A very introspective, very thoughtful, uh, often very quiet man who changed the world in so many ways, changed India remarkably, and is remembered by everyone for doing that, even though he was not an extrovert at all.
0: I know you haven't seen The Crown yet, but I finished watching season one of The Crown recently, and I think the king, so Elizabeth's father, he is also an example of a leader who seemed pretty introverted. I mean, he was the same, I didn't realize this um, until my parents pointed it out, but He was the same king in the king's speech who had to learn how to overcome his speech impediment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I don't know. It was just, I mean, he didn't choose to be the king. He had to become the king because his brother abdicated. But he ended up being the leader of, you know, the United Kingdom. And he was not, I wouldn't call him an extrovert. So, I don't know, just another example. And shout out to the crown because so far, I'm liking that show. <laughs>
1: right. Well, I thought it was interesting that that Kane's hypothesis that, and it's not just Kane, there's a professor at Wharton and Adam Grant who's done some work on who's better at leading teams, introverts or extroverts. But I thought their research was interesting, uncovering exactly why it is they think that introverts can be extraordinarily effective leaders. And a lot of it has to do with this thoughtful deliberation and serious introspection that is demanded of leaders in positions of power because the stakes for making mistakes in those positions are uh, very high. The margin of error is very slim. And so it's the introverts who carry to the job a certain level of gravitas and sobriety of thinking that enables them to perform the task well. It, of course, doesn't mean that all leaders are introverts, but I think she's just trying to dispel the myth that if you want to be a leader, you need to learn how to work a room, basically.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think she made her point well.
1: One interesting insight from Adam Grant, that Wharton professor that I mentioned, was that uh, introverts are better at leading active teams, while extroverts are better at leading passive teams. So in other words, he, he did some research uh, and concluded through a trial that people who are leading teams that are a bunch of self-starters are better as introverts because they're able to subtly guide the active extroverts on where to go. Uh, whereas if you have a bunch of passive people on a team, a passive introvert, maybe, and maybe, maybe maybe passive isn't the best word, but if you have an introvert at the head of the team and then all introverts on the team, it might be hard for for them to co- to coordinate momentum in the same direction because they're all going to be sort of uh, introspective and inward looking. Whereas if you have an extrovert leading that team, you'll have an extrovert who can set direction and vision in a way, and then the introverts can generate great ideas that emanate from within. So and I can I th- I see think
0: that. Of- I guess I can see the extrovert leading the introverted team, but I would wonder, I don't know, I guess it would just have to be a confident introvert who wouldn't be um, just kind of talked over by a bunch of extroverts and extroverts would have to be willing to follow the introverted leader.
1: That's Does a that really good sense? point. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And I think, Maybe here is, is where uh, Susan Kane talked about how, well actually she didn't maybe talk about this explicitly. It was more implicit, I think, in certain sections. But I think one thing that's important for anybody who, anybody who identifies as an introvert or anybody who sometimes thinks they're introverted at times is that introversion is not the same thing as passivity. It's not the same thing as being a doormat. So someone like George Washington, for example, can be an introvert, but be the strongest man in the room. You know, so he's an introvert who's an introspective thinker and prefers quiet weekends to himself at his Mount Vernon estate, but he is not going to be walked all over by the extroverts in the legislature who love to argue. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good segue into talking about um, her definitions of introvert and extrovert, which he lays out in the beginning in the introduction and then kind of carries through and develops throughout the book until the conclusion. Um, But she starts with Carl... It's Jung, right? Carl Jung? Yeah. Um, And talks about his... I think
1: that's how how I've been reading it. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I thought it was.
0: Um, Carl Jung. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's that. (laughs) Um, And so she starts with his definitions of introvert and extrovert, and then she builds on it from there. Um, So... See, I'm just going to actually flip to that page. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Well, and the, so the interesting thing is, I was surprised she didn't do this at the at the outset of the book, but she saved it till the end. She had this whole section where she acknowledged that she almost didn't didn't talk about introversion and extroversion along those lines in the book. That she developed another way to talk about these traits because. I think they carry so much baggage because people think their own things right. about introvert or extrovert. Lots of people have their own ideas already about whether they are an introvert or an extrovert. Right. And and, and a lot of modern research suggests that there's more to the puzzle than just being an introvert or being an extrovert as Young suggested.
0: I think she made the right choice in using the terms introvert and extrovert because that's what we know. That's, you know, those are the terms that w- that people are familiar with and I think Challenge is just redefining them and breaking down people's stereotypes.
1: Right, totally. Yeah, okay. um, she, she basically acknowledged uh, that. I mean, she says, I'm reading at the end here, page 264. I originally planned to invent my own terms for these constellation of traits. I decided against this again for cultural reasons. Words introvert and extrovert have the advantage of being well known and highly evocative. So I, I guess it's kind of a double edged sword. On the one hand, Everyone knows about what you mean when you say introvert extrovert, but on the other hand, people only know about what you mean, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, so, two criticisms came up when I was kind of reading other reviews of Kane that I didn't really think about when I was reading it, but it made sense to me afterwards. One is that Maybe there's a third category, the ambivert, which he mentions at one point, and I'm not sure what the page number is on that, but someone who obviously can is both introverted and extroverted. Um, and one article had said that oh, more than a majority of people are actually, um, are actually ambiverts. Or something. <laughs> yeah, something's happening. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know where it's coming from, though. Oh, here we go. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, it means that it's time for me to go to bed, actually.
1: <laughs> oh, nice, the bedtime a lot. Yeah. Perfect.
0: Um, sorry about that. Uh, so anyways, ambiverts. You know, both introverted and extroverted. Maybe it's not just two different two different personality types. And then What was
1: the percentage number you said?
0: Well, I think what I read was sixty eight percent. I need to double check that.
1: Are ambiverts. Yeah, that's what
0: one person said. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the other criticism was that her inter- definition of introversion ultimately that we get at the end is just too broad. And in her attempt to overcome all of these stereotypes of what an introvert is, that it's not someone who's shy or passive, um, it doesn't just mean that you're introspective. It could be any of a number of things. And she lists this very long list um, reflective, cerebral, bookish, unassuming, sensitive, thoughtful, serious, contemplative, subtle, introspective, interdirected, gentle, calm, modest, solitude-seeking, shy, risk-averse, and thin-skinned, that you could be any of a number of those things and be an introvert. Right. Um, I don't know if we want to talk about that now or wait until we're completely done, but that's a very broad definition. And she said it's deliberately broad because she's trying to break down these, these stereotypes
1: yeah no i think we can talk about it now i think it's also deliberately broad because she's trying to get people to understand the value of introversion and so if if everyone can see in themselves a little bit of introversion it helps that project
0: right yeah yeah
1: so i mean i've always thought of myself and you know because we were talking about this as i was reading it i was like oh my gosh am i an introvert yeah yeah. but I've, i've i've always thought of myself as an extrovert because I like going to dinner parties, I like talking to people. I get energized when I'm spending time with friends or or strangers, just other people. I I find that a lot of fun. But then as she's talking about some of these, some of the qualities of an introvert, um, I start to think, oh, I like maybe this. Maybe I am like this because sometimes I do get part. You know, sometimes I do get tired after. Uh, a three and a half hour dinner party. I guess like who doesn't upon the reflection, but um, also sometimes I do just like, you know, curling up with the book and reading. Sometimes I do find myself pretty introspective and I want to uh, write a journal entry or go on a walk in nature. Like, does that mean that I'm an introvert?
0: Right, right. right. And
1: and so about halfway through the book, she had me thinking, wow, maybe I have my whole, like the whole schema of my personality <laughs> wrong. And that's, that's when we talked about it, I think last, Um, and by the end of the book, I had come back around and I was like, oh no, because she had talked more about extroverts and how extroverts and introverts are different. So by the end of the book, I come around and was thinking, no, I think I'm, I think I am an extrovert, but I do have these introverted elements of my character and I should, I should cultivate and nurture those. So maybe that's sort of the goal of her book in the first place.
0: Maybe that maybe the myth, maybe another myth is that there are these complete extroverts and complete introverts. You know, there's people who, maybe you're right, just that everyone has a little bit of both because she has this quiz that she has you take. And I, taking the quiz, I was like, I can't answer, I always thought of myself as very purely introverted, but taking that that the quiz I was just I realized no I I can't answer the introverted answer to all of these questions and and I just wonder if if they're really or if there are pure introverts and pure extroverts that fit the stereotype completely that they're just a very very small percentage and that's why this book can be so popular is because people can read it and find find themselves in both both personality type.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. There's There was one point in the book where she acknowledged, I think it was when she was talking about Jung and his theories of introversion and extroversion, she acknowledged that nobody or almost nobody is entirely introverted or entirely extroverted because such a person would be insane.
0: Okay, <laughs> that's, she, yeah, I remember that now. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah but she, she, only, she only really says that once and she doesn't circle back to that part. I think that probably would have been helpful to reaffirm because like you're saying, yeah, I mean, I was just going through that. That list of, or that quiz of characteristics is on page 13. And yeah, I mean, someone who would answer in the affirmative or in the negative for every single one of these um, would not be a very pleasant person to be around, I right, think. Right. And that's a really rare person. I don't think I know anybody like that. And yeah, so in that way, there's really probably 99% of people who are ambiverts. If by ambivert we mean someone who is some parts introvert and some parts extrovert. Um, but I think it's still probably true of people that they generally fall uh, fall more into one side than the other, you know, a true introvert maybe would be than someone who's kind of 50 50 split along these traits. But even then, it's not clear what constitutes a 50 50 split. Um, but it's probably true, of most people that they're, you know, 60 to 70% extroverted and six, or 60 to 70% introverted.
0: And that they, their introversion falls along different lines maybe than other people, you know, to be an introvert, maybe they are calm and subtle and risk averse and another person is shy and, and cerebral. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, I do enjoy hanging out with people, but I also do find myself to be a tortured genius. So,
0: (laughs) right. So kind of, kind of both there. (laughs) Um. (laughs) okay so let's let's talk about the biology chapter or a few chapters i think that was also kind of something that really stuck stood out as being unique part of her her argument
1: can we go back actually for a second because i forgot um another example i just wanted to mention briefly which i thought was very interesting was in the going this is going way back to the Um, myth of charismatic leadership that we were talking about. But I forgot to mention Moses, which is one of the examples Cain uses to talk about this myth. And Moses, if you've watched the Charlton Heston 10 Commandments blockbuster, that's like three hours long and um, very, (laughs) uh, well, it's good, but it's long. Then you see Moses as this like wiry, muscular figure who has fearlessly volunteered to lead the Israelites out of exile. He's
0: like George Clooney now, you know, That like right. they remade it. Yeah, yeah, and was... I guess they have remade it. But if they remade it again, George Clooney could be Moses.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but if you read the Old Testament story, Moses is this, you know, small framed, timid guy with a speech impediment who is kind of, he appears to be aimless by all external accounts and is just a shepherd for his father-in-law when he is... Uh, called upon by God to lead the Israelites out of exile. And then, you know, he has to go in front of Pharaoh and plead the case and demand that Pharaoh let the people go. So there's a huge disconnect between the historical Moses as he's portrayed in the Old Testament and the Moses as it's portrayed in, in film. And she uses that to illustrate the culture of personality. This is what we value. We value leaders who can speak well, speak eloquently, put themselves out there, be forceful, uh, be the the salesman that Moses is in Ten Commandments, or if, if not the salesman, then the you know the sort of soldier, the um, the enforcer. So I thought that was yeah. And
0: interesting. Moses is the leader, even though he requires a sidekick to kind of speak for him, whose name is escaping me right now.
1: Uh, Aaron, right? Aaron, right?
0: Yes. Which reminds me of when I was a kid and um, my sister. Elena, who is also one of our contributors, even though she's an introvert, she was, I guess, more extroverted as a child or something, at least more than me. And I would always have her like speak for me or ring the doorbells if we were going somewhere or just whatever. (laughs) Um,
1: So, so everyone, you heard it here first, I is comparing herself to Moses.
0: (laughs) I realized (laughs) as I was talking that this analogy does not actually keep up because i'm not i was not a leader in that situation but i'm just saying that it just reminds me of having someone to have someone speak for you and yet somehow he was the leader that just surprises me yeah Um, Also, before we talk about the biology chapter, we should talk about um, just briefly the collaborative workspace thing. She talks about how the rise of collaborative workspaces has actually been detrimental to creativity, which is very, very interesting because most people, I think, think that if they throw a bunch of people in a room, brainstorm, come up with all their ideas, they're going to come out with some miraculous invention or something like that.
1: I'm so glad you brought this up because this was one of the sections that was making me rethink my extroversion and and wonder if I was actually an introvert. (laughs) Because she was talking about how collaborative workspaces are so stressful for introverts and they can't stand them and can't get any work done. And that is exactly the way I feel I've mentioned before on this podcast about how I Uh, share a cubicle with like five other people and it has just been absolutely terrible for my productivity i can never get anything done because someone's always coming in to ask me questions and talk to me and i love talking to people so it's not that i dislike that it's just that there's actual work that i need to be getting done as well and i can't when people are talking to me or when people are talking to my neighbor who's sitting right next to me um does she say
0: that people do work well i mean i guess some people do work well in those situations
1: Um, no, I don't think she actually said that they enhance productivity for anybody.
0: Yeah. I mean, for some people, they might love that kind of workspace only because it's just like a social club and then they have to do their work some other time.
1: Right. Totally. No, I mean, that's how I, so to be totally honest, that's how I would feel about it sometimes because I would go through the day, I would get nothing done during the day and I work a pretty early schedule. So I'd go in at like 5am and then by... 2pm, most of the office would clear out because people were done their eight hour work days. And that's when I would actually do my work. (laughs) Because like before that, I would just be going to meetings and getting caught up talking to people or catching up or um, people would be coming to me to ask things and it would just be like social eight hours and then uh, I would get my work done. It was it wasn't unenjoyable for the first eight hours, but it made my days long. And it just killed my productivity.
0: And I'm sure there are some instances when people, you know, lean over the side of their cubicle and they say something to someone and they're like, they have, you know, the light bulb goes on and they figure out some new thing that they're going to work on or some new step to their project, but more than likely that is not happening.
1: Right. And they're leaning over the side of their cubicle
0: to talk about, you know, their Friday night plans or something.
1: Right. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, the, and I've actually, I read, I've read other things online about open workspaces and how companies are rethinking them as well. And it, it's just funny, they were they were just the new hotness for so long. People were all tearing down walls and having open offices, and now companies are going back and realizing, oh, our numbers are way down. Maybe we should put up the walls again.
0: Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be distracting our employees so much. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, exactly. So if you can work in that kind of environment, more power to you, but I am not good at it.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that is that was – all of that was the introduction in part one. Part two is where they ta- she talks about biology and that introvert and extrovert is both a product of nurture and nature. This was a really interesting section because um, I, I don't – I can't even – fully understand all of the science that went into all of the research that came up with these two characteristics, but, or these two um, uh, types of person, but there's the low reactive person and the high reactive person. And isn't it, it's the opposite of what you think that it means, right? Cause low reactive is, is those are the extroverts, right? And the high reactive, those are the introverts.
1: Correct. Yep. Yeah. So the, and because it, it responds or it, um, refers to the response to external stimuli, and so, so people the, who
0: don't react as much to external stimuli are more cool and collected, and those are the extroverts. Yes, are more more likely to be extroverts, right?
1: Yeah, more likely to be extroverts. Yeah, so I guess if you take the example of a dinner party. A dinner party with 10 people is going to be way more overwhelming for someone who's high reactive than for someone who's low reactive. And someone who's low reactive might think like, oh, I need I need to get, you know, more. I need to get buzzed some more with more people, you know, so let's bring in more. The more the merrier. And someone who is high reactive might be thinking this is already too much. Like there's just so many conversations going on and uh, there's so many people in this crowded space and I need some some time to myself.
0: Those are the people who just go into the bathroom and try to find something to do with themselves until yeah literally she talked <laughs> Go about read a she, book. <laughs> she,
1: yeah she had this example of a professor who will um he's good at acting like an extrovert when he gives his lectures and speeches but then he'll need to flee to a bathroom and hide in a stall because it's just it's just overwhelming and he needs his time but yeah that, that was that. a really interesting section in in some ways it seems like Again, you know, like like you, not a scientist, but it seems kind of like the, the science of today better supports this dichotomy between high reactive and low reactive than it does between introversion and extroversion.
0: And so I think I this is a if, better way. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I wonder if in the future we'll be talking more about that than we do about introversion and extroversion, but that's obviously speculative on my part.
0: Yeah, well, and I think if we had, I don't know, a Venn diagram, I don't, this, there's more, um, it's less black and white. The low reactive and high reactive because right. you can be low reactive and be either introvert or extrovert. So it just seems like maybe that's a better way to classify because there's a little bit more overlap.
1: Right. Yeah, so I mean, I guess for myself, I feel like I'm very frequently a high reactive, but I'm I think an ex pretty extroverted high reactive person. So that's a that's a good example right there of what we're talking about.
0: I appreciated that after all this talk about biology, she went on to say, but there's so much in our environment that that then develops that. If you. Yes. You can put you can be a low reactive child, but then become high reactive just based on your environment. And then in the next chapter, she says you could be low reactive and move to high reactive or vice versa because of your choice, because you decide to take on these other qualities. Um, And maybe that's not really changing your temperament, but it's at least changing your, the, the, you know, uh, visible expression of your temperament.
1: Well, to bring this back, uh, full circle, we talked about Dale Carnegie and how he helped usher in the culture of personality. But but the whole reason that he's been so successful and that his name is a household name is because he was able to effectively teach people how to win friends and influence people. In other words, how to be an extrovert. So people can change. This is not an immutable set of traits, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then another another way of classifying personality besides the low-reactive, higher-active, she talks about whether you are – reward oriented or threat oriented. Right. And that means that do you act or do you live your life in, I guess, hopes of some sort of reward, some sort of tangible or intangible reward? Or is it out of concern or fear of danger or risk or harm? Um, and then she has another kind of quiz that you can take, decide whether you're reward oriented or threat oriented. And that one, I think was more clear to me that I think I'm more threat oriented than reward oriented. What about you?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I can, I can see both sides. It's hard for me to conceptualize being reward oriented or threat oriented. But when I took her quiz, I was definitely more reward oriented.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that every I d- answered yes to all of them. I don't right. constantly think about possible things that could go wrong, but um but I'm definitely less less uh incentivized by by rewards. I could know that there's going to be a reward and care less about it.
1: Right. Yeah, I I never care less about the award. I always <laughs> I always want the reward. Uh but i can see the threat oriented thing too i mean so like yes we have you know renters insurance and yes we have car insurance because <laughs> i'm concerned about the threat of losing a uh, property or totaling a car but i'm also very reward oriented in how i how i pursue things like in my career etc
0: well and even her the threats that she talks about as that you could be oriented towards are more like they're more intangible threats, not actual uh-huh. threats. It's not like threat of world war or something like that. Um, because she talks about if your threat-oriented criticism or scolding hurts you, you're worried or upset if you know that someone's angry at you. You um, you are worried if you've done something poorly. You worry about making mistakes. So, so they're kind of um, less obvious threats, I guess.
1: Yeah, so... And I thought this was an interesting section that I largely was tracking with, but on further, further thought about it, it's like there are quite a few people out there who are really both reward and threat oriented to the max. And by that, I mean someone who is in a position of power, uh, almost monomaniacal about this power. They want the power and they want the power for the sake of the power. So that seems like it's pretty reward oriented. But they're also the type of people who have such a big egos that they will feel very uh, hurt or injured if you insult them or criticize them or tell them what they did mm. wrong.
0: Kind of like Steve Jobs.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. So this guy was obviously reward oriented. Reward oriented because he wanted the adulation of a uh, adoring public for his. Ingenious ideas about technology that may or may not have been totally his as we discussed already. (laughs) Um, But he also, you know, he wanted to be recognized in the annals of history as a great man because he was reward oriented,
0: even in the um, the way that they were. I guess on the, the payroll. He wanted to be number one on the payroll. And I forgot about that. the president of the company at the time or whoever was in charge of him at the time said, no, you can't be number one. It's just because he didn't want to fuel his ego. And so, right. but Jobs convinced him to let him be number zero, which actually meant nothing because for the IRS or the bank's purposes, they needed number one. So Woz was number one and Jobs was number zero. But in Jobs' mind, <laughs> that meant that he was number one. He was just like right. absolutely ridiculous ridiculous such such yeah. an ecomaniac
1: but i mean so that biography that we're talking about he asked walter isaacson to write that he commissioned his own biography <laughs> that's a good um, point so so this is just like the person that he is but as soon as he was offended or felt double-crossed he turned vicious because he was in the way i think threat oriented too so i don't know maybe it maybe it just doesn't apply to those types of people but I'm also just not sure the utility of reward-oriented or threat-oriented because it seems like there are some people who are quite a bit of both.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Um, okay, and then let's touch on the chapter on soft pow- called Soft Power. I thought this was really interesting. I don't know a lot about Asian cultures, um, but her main point was that the extrovert ideal is really a Western thing. And in Eastern cultures, um, the leader is not an extrovert. And the qualities that we normally say are those of introverts are actually the ones that are most highly valued.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to the culture of personality thing, I think uh, um, favors the Protestant work ethic as a part of that, right? That like this whole idea of Western individualism is deeply rooted in Western Protestantism.
0: And capitalism, too, right? Kind of like... And
1: capitalism, exactly. Working yeah, your way up sort of from
0: a... your bootst- or your whatever that phrase is.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: the bootstraps thing, whatever. Yeah,
1: pick, is it pick, picking you up by your bootstraps? I maybe, think? maybe. Um, something about bootstraps. <laughs> but yeah, that whole idea of capitalism and individualism is deeply rooted in Western and specifically Protestant identity. And that is something that Asian culture does not have.
0: Yeah, I remember going to Japan um, as a early teenager and um, finding out that they, they 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 mostly have team sports in their public schools um, because it's more about it's less about the individual person and it's more about the group working together. So that's why I mean it makes sense to me that then in a situation where there needs to be a leader, the leader is not going to put himself up him or herself up. A, above everyone else. They're going to try to, um, you know, create cohesion.
1: Right. And it's it's very, I mean, when I was growing up, it was very clear that um, my friends who were Asian-Americans had a culture of deference in their family that far exceeded that culture in my family. You know, that you always defer to your elders, to to grandparents and to parents um, in a way that is really kind of anathema to the way people do parenting and family life in in uh, the Western world.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the book that I mentioned in our media episode, The Collapse of Parenting, which is about parents being too defer- deferential to their children versus right. children being deferential to their parents.
1: I thought there right. was well, also helpful. That... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, just on that point, there's that uh, bestseller, uh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, which is, um, I haven't read it, but from what I understand about the book, it's partly about this, that um, there are distinctive differences between parenting in uh, Eastern cultures and Western cultures. And one of those is, uh, you know, for lack of a, a more delicate way of saying this, children know their place in, uh, in one culture and they are not deferential and don't know their place in the other.
0: And if anyone's seen Gilmore Girls, you've seen those two extremes in Rory and Lane's parents. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. Because Lane is Korean and her mother is kind of the stereotypical Korean tiger mama, I guess. Um, I thought it was also helpful, this chapter, just um, to kind of understand where Asian Americans might be coming from, that especially if you're an extroverted American dealing with Asian Americans, or just even maybe not Asian American, Asian, um, you can kind of understand a little bit more where they're coming from, and and hopefully not you know run over them with your extroversion.
1: Right, totally. Yeah, this. I had one friend growing up who was Asian American, and he was incredible at playing piano still is. Um, I've, I've largely lost touch with him. But from what I know, he went to a private school, and I think he went to Juilliard. So he's a very impressive piano player. Um, but growing up, I was just always really amazed at how deferential he was to his mother. And um, I think I, mean, I think a mostly positive way, but I'm not, I'm not passing value judgment on one way or the other, just observing the differences. But if I were over at his house, and it was time to go, my mom told me it was time to go, I would put up a fight. No, mom, can we stay for, you know, 15 more minutes, just 15 more minutes, please? What's going to hurt? We can just stay for a little longer. And if the, when the roles were reversed and this did happen and he was over at my house and his mom said it was time to go and it was just, um, you know, basically, yes, ma'am, I'll get my shoes on and, and they would leave. And I was always just like, wow, why is he just, you know, rolling over and not putting up a fight? Hmm. And now, now I understand, you know?
0: Yeah, and that didn't mean that he was being a wallflower or a doormat. It was more kind of just a a, a part of their culture.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: I also thought it was um helpful in the chapters after this. Un- unless do you have anything more about this chapter before I
1: No. No.
0: Well, I just thought it was helpful in her chapter about communicating between the personality types. Um, mm. Not that you were a mystery to me before I read this book, and this book like just you know opened up all the ways of your personality but i 've always thought of you as an extrovert, and I just thought it was interesting for all the different anecdotes that she had of different couples who were differing personality types and how they had to understand where the other people were coming from in order to understand um, their choices and responses to different situations. And I think we've definitely experienced that in our, you know, relationship over the past five years.
1: So 100% have, I, and, uh, it's like you're, we're on the same, um, on the same, uh, brain wavelength here because oh, that's good. <laughs> when I was, when I was reading that, uh, that anecdote about the couple who would, uh, get in arguments about their dinner parties, yes,
0: <laughs> yes, their like, social life sounds so familiar. <laughs>
1: It sounds so familiar. (laughs) So, yeah, that was that was pretty, um, pretty interesting to see how we're not. I mean, I guess I knew we weren't the only ones who doubt that, but it was really interesting to see a story very similar to the the issues that that we've seen and we've had to work through.
0: And from the standpoint of personality types, not from the standpoint of, you know, communication necessarily, but just that you, you know, the reason that you're having these communication difficulties is possibly because you're different personality types and you don't fully understand the other person's type.
1: Right. And I just to recap the anecdote briefly, so people aren't in the dark. So there's this couple in the book who are married. She's an introvert. He's an extrovert. And they end up arguing about these dinner parties that he wants to host weekly. So he wants to have, as he's always done for his adult life, every Friday night, have all his friends over for a big pasta dinner.
0: It's even bigger than that. It's like mass. It's a massive party, right?
1: It's like, like I think it's like 20 people every Friday night okay, for a big pasta masses. thing. Um, I mean, that's pretty big if you're in a small apartment, right? Like you're talking about, you know, high reactive people in a small apartment. That's tough. So he wants to do this every Friday night and it's just really stressful for her, but it's the highlight of his week. So you can see how um, there's kind of a, an impasse here. So they end up going to counseling for this um, not because they're about to divorce her, but just because they are like they want to find a solution. And uh, they end up compromising. But first, they have to understand each other's point of view that uh, to him, this is the highlight of his week. And he gets a lot of energy and affirmation out of this. And for her, it's kind of the most threatening part of her week because she has to spend so much time getting mentally psyched up for it. And she has to have so much time recovery afterwards, of rebound from because it, so, it's just so mentally and physically taxing for her. And so they end up compromising and they have, a, I think, a smaller party every other week. Um, and so they arrive at a conclusion that's mutually uh, satisfying. But it was really interesting to read about that because, Sal, you and I have had similar—not quite like I wasn't wanting to throw a, a massive party every week or anything, but just we've had to sort of fine tune our social calendar because my appetite for doing things is a little bit more than yours.
0: Right. And I remember one time when we were newly engaged, when um, there was an event and we had different responses to the event. And at least you were concerned that that meant that we, and I think I was too, that that meant that we couldn't get married or we wouldn't be able to yeah. you know spend the less of our lives together because I was feeling overwhelmed. You didn't by like it. parties as and much as I did. <laughs> you were you know it was even a smaller event than that, but yeah, but that I I was feeling overwhelmed by it and not enjoying it and you were just like, you know, having the time of your life. So <laughs> maybe we're yeah, not meant yeah, to be. Totally.
1: Maybe not. Um Silly I also me. what a what a young <laughs> foolish person I was.
0: I also thought this was really helpful for she she points out that this that understanding the differences between these the personality types is really helpful for parents, but also managers and teachers. And, yes. um, you know, I'm not a manager and I'm not formally a teacher, but, you know, I te- will teach my children as they get older and do teach my children and obviously a parent. And I think. It is really important for parents to understand where their kids are coming from and how that differs from where they're coming from, and make sure that they're not imposing certain um, stereotypes on their children. And she gives examples right. of parents who think that their introverted child is um, has something wrong with them, that they're too passive or too shy, and and I think it is really important not to. Um, to place those kinds of labels on their on your kids, but to recognize that maybe they are, tend towards the introverted side, but that you know that's not wrong, and finding some happy medium between encouraging them to kind of get outside their shell um, and not miss out on opportunities because they they maybe tend towards passivity, but um, but also not just labeling them as, as shy and and, um, and allowing them to be reclusive, I guess.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I, I am really grateful that I read this book because I'm married to an introvert and in part because of that, I think it's especially likely that at least one of our daughters will be, um, quite the introvert. And so this book really helped me understand, um, kind of how, maybe how to raise an introvert, you know, how to help her recognize the intrinsic gifts that she has, and how even though she's living in a world that emphasizes what Kane calls the extrovert ideal, that the introvert ideal is just as valued, maybe even more so, or valuable, maybe even more so, and that she has intrinsic worth because of that. But at the same time, and also helping her understand how to cultivate some of the strengths that extroverts have, and how to mimic some of the success that they can have in cultivating relationships with people, too.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So if you're a parent, manager or teacher, yet another reason why this book might be something to pick up.
1: Yeah. Or if you're married to someone who's not the same personality type as you, which is, I think, going to be a lot of people, given that, you know, Kane talks about the research that says opposites attract and lots of lots of introverts marry extroverts. So there's a good likelihood that you're one of those people and definitely recommend the book.
0: Um, okay, well,
1: Is that, did we cover it?
0: I, I think we, I think that, I mean, that's, we, we got through the whole book. So I guess right. concluding thoughts, um, I, I went into this book reading, I went into reading it thinking that I was an introvert and I still do think that I'm an introvert. Um, I think that what it means to be an introvert varies though. And I, it was helpful to me and kind of seeing, I appreciated her broad definition of introversion because I never like being put in a box and I appreciated that she kind of just blew up the box.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I uh, Any negative criticism before I go?
0: Uh, well, I think I kind of said some things that, um, I mean, the, the idea of being an ambivert, I think she could have expanded right. on that. Um, I know that... Oh, I guess I'm not going to say what your negative criticism is. Yeah, um, yeah, I think she could have expanded on the ambivert thing, and I don't know. I was what I was, was the neg-
1: what, what was the negative criticism you were going to say for me?
0: Oh, um, that she gave too many anecdotes and kind of droned on at times when she could oh, have made yeah. her point more succinctly. Yeah, just, I, they, I can it was see too that. Wrong in
1: general. Yeah. Yeah. And um yeah, I'm reading another book right now that is similar and I've I've um talked to you about this before, Sally, but I just I I really like long form journalism because I think it's a medium that's not long enough to give people extra room to write fluff, but it's long enough to have detailed arguments. And the more I've gotten into long form journalism, the less patience I've had for uh, books that are not succinct and you know, really tightly narrated, I guess. And so this, this falls into that category, not in an egregious way. It's not like it's terribly long, or that it drones on and on and on and on. It's not like a 900 page tome. But I just think that the argument was maybe not quite as tight as it could have been, and had some um, anecdotes in there that were not wholly necessary. But that's probably more of a personal preference than anything. I don't know.
0: Yeah, there were times when I um, kind of got lost in the the, the flow of her argument, because she would jump to different stories um, and intersperse her argument, or I guess intersperse the stories in her argument, one or the other. Um, and and that, that was a little bit challenging, but I was also kind of reading it in chunks, so that could have been part of my
1: problem right. as well. I yeah, think you sure. read I'm it more awesome
0: in larger chunks, and so that probably gave you a better idea of the flow of her argument than... Uh, you know, I, it took me longer to read it.
1: Well, I was also trying to read it quickly. So that might have accentuated my frustration, you know, like, come on, I get it. Like, let's go. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see both sides. But that's my one criticism. Um, I I do concur with your your request that she could have talked a little bit more about the ambivert ideal, but I can't really have my cake in it, too. I can't complain that the book is too long and say that she should have covered true, more. True, true. Um, so I'll just, I'll refrain from that. but like you I think it's a really good read I think it was very helpful for me as someone who's married to an introvert in understanding you Sally and I really think it's it, not just understand like as if you know like you're from Venus me from Mars that's just nonsense yeah um, but understand it as understand introverts and really recognize how valuable the introvert way of thinking is and I know that because I'm married to you but i don't necess- i didn't necessarily know that i guess about all introverts you know so like i after um 4 plus years of being married to you i absolutely recognize how valuable your insight is but i didn't necessarily attribute the same valuable insight to other introverts that i know
0: well i think and part of that is just the negative associations that we have with either term no one wants right. to maybe you know uh, at least I didn't want to be associated with really either of them because introvert just seems to be, you know, shy and passive and um and can't, you know, look people in the eye and extrovert is just blowing people over with their loud voices and ideas. So right. I think I think that her book is helpful just in part just blowing those those stereotypes out of the water and just saying, you know, start over and here's why.
1: Right, totally. And I also think it's valuable in in another way. She wrote it primarily for introverts, at least she says. And I also think that it's good for extroverts to read and to recognize that they can be cultivating the introverted parts of their personalities, even if their culture says they're not worth cultivating. So that's one of my big takeaways from a personal standpoint is I'm this extroverted person who has some introverted qualities that I mentioned earlier, and those are worth cultivating because they are good in and of themselves. So,
0: yeah, that's a really good point. So All right. that's
1: my review of the book.
0: Well, good. All right. Well, hopefully people will stuck with us. It was a long book, so I guess it required a long conversation to really unpack it. Yeah,
1: it was good, though. Um, we're very excited about next week. Or not next week. <laughs> we're not reading that fast. Uh, next month, a man called Ove by Friedrich Bachmann. If you haven't picked it up, though, it's, it is a it is actually a fast read. I read it in about
0: yeah, it's two a days, novel, Sally. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You were really fast.
1: Yeah, it's a novel, and it'll it'll keep you engaged. It's very good. So, um, pick up a man called Ove O V E by Friedrich Bachmann. You can join us for that conversation next month. All right. Um, any other administrative announcements we need to make, Sally?
0: I don't think so. Um, I guess, well, just contact us on social media or email us at, at Zach Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. If you have comments about A Man Called O that you would like to share with us, insights that we could include by name or not. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just like to make this as interactive as possible.
1: And also if you have comments about quiet from Susan Cain, something we missed or something you want to respond to that we talked about or something that she talked about that we didn't. uh, Please also get in touch with us. There are, as you know, three ways to get in touch with us. Sally mentioned them already, but I'll just rehash them here. First email, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast or on Twitter at vernacularpod.
0: And leave us a rating or a review or both on iTunes. We especially since we aren't recording as frequently, we need those ratings and reviews to keep our podcast, um, you know, up there um, in the search when people search for us, um, and to yeah, just make us more visible to new listeners. So we would appreciate any good or not good, but preferably good things you have to say about us. <laughs>
1: And this once a month schedule will not last. This is only temporary while I am traveling a lot the first uh, four months of this year. After that, we plan on going back to our once every two weeks with more exciting topics and guests. So bear with us. Hopefully you enjoy the books along the way and we'll talk to you next month. For vernacular podcast, I'm Zach and I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by your side